0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that's been set aside from our normal activities to be gathered together by you, to receive from you that which we need for faith and for life through the word and through the sacrament and through your spirit. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your bidding as you conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Jonah. Lord willing, I'll be able to preach the next four Sundays, and we'll have four sermons, one on each chapter, really, of the book of Jonah. It's leading into Reformation Day or Reformation Sunday, and the theme of Jonah is really highlighted for us in Jonah 2.9. It says that salvation belongs to the Lord. And from beginning to end, we're going to find that the Lord is the primary actor in the book of Jonah. We're going to read a lot about Jonah, and we're going to read about a fish, and we're going to read about other people. But the primary actor is Jonah. And actually, that theme, salvation belongs to the Lord, could be the theme of all of Scripture, isn't it? Salvation to his God, people will give as he makes a promise. Immediately after Adam and Eve had failed, he makes a promise to send a seed that would crush the head of the serpent, that would, in essence, redeem his people, that would redeem his children. And so all of Scripture is really telling the story from beginning to end about how salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah, in particular, is a masterpiece of biblical literature. Hopefully you'll enjoy it as we go through. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you, at least maybe once a week, to read the book in its entirety. It's only four chapters. It'll take you only a couple of minutes. It's very interesting. It has lots of puns. It has lots of irony. It has lots of plays on words. There's a lot of drama. There's no superfluous details in it. They're all omitted. The author of the book of Jonah, in terms of any certainty, is unknown. Many assume that Jonah wrote it, but we don't know for certain. The dates of the events are approximately the 8th century B.C., and the author, like, any, like many good books, is actually keeping questions alive for the audience. As a matter of fact, the book of Jonah is one of only two or three books in the Bible that ends with a question. So it's not necessarily answering all the questions for us. It's inviting us in to think about these things, to consider these things, to, to apply it to our lives and to think about it in our world, and our context uh, as well. And the opening lines are absolutely crucial in any good story. And especially in a world where stories can not, don't have any kind of title page or table of contents. And so Jonah starts off with a bang. Like many other works of good literature. You might remember the beginning of Anna Karenina. says, happy families are all alike. But every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. <laughs> you can tell this is going to be an interesting story or something I might want to read. Charles Dickens... It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Kind of wish Dickens would make up his mind, right? We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We are all going direct to heaven and we are all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparisons only. You can tell just by reading that this is going to be an interesting book. This is going to be an interesting read. Or think of the start of the scriptures themselves. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's setting a stage for something significant, isn't it? And here we have that in Jonah a rich book, a masterpiece of literature. And as we read the opening chapter together, pay attention to the word but. But God, but Jonah, but God, but Jonah. There's kind of a tennis match of what's going on here. And then pay attention to the word down. You're going to notice a descent of Jonah as he goes down from this place, down to this place, down to this place. That's intentional by the author. And so I just want to give you the cliff notes ahead of time here. So let's hear now the word of the Lord, Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amate, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And had laid down and was fast asleep so the captain came and said to him what do you mean you sleeper arise call out to your God perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish and they said to one another come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah then they said to him Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land because they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So far, the reading of God's holy word, This is really a great story, isn't it? We want to look at three things as we look at this text this morning. We first want to look at the calling of the Lord, and then we want to look at the fleeing of the prophet, and then we want to look at the pursuit of the Lord. The calling of the Lord, the fleeing of the prophet, and the pursuit of the Lord, So it starts off with that calling of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. A wonderful start. The word of the Lord has come to prophets over and over. A hundred times in the Old Testament. Anyone who stood in the office of a prophet had to have had counsel with the Lord, had to have stood in his divine presence in one way or another. And here we find out that Jonah is before the presence of the Lord. He's receiving a direct command from the creator of the universe. We know a little bit about Jonah, we don't know a ton about him. We know that even in this text his name is his name is Jonah, he's the son of Amate. Literally his name means dove or son of truth. But we don't want to overinterpret the name or make it mean too much, but we do want to mention it. Jonah prophesied around the same time as Hosea and Amos, a little bit after Elijah and Elisha. And Jonah is actually given honorable mention in 2nd Kings 14 25 it talks about him favorably and we assume that this is not Jonah's first call from the Lord that Jonah has had the privilege to be able to serve as a servant of the Lord and a prophet of the Lord before it he's already gone out on different missions and done things that the Lord has called him to do it's a privileged position to be called a servant of the Lord and a prophet of the Lord and Jonah has served before and now the word of the Lord comes to him. It comes to Jonah, and it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Might help us to know a little bit about Nineveh, right? Nineveh was an Assyrian city. It was about 600 miles northeast of Israel. The Assyrian empire was, had lasted about 1,000 years Nineveh is situated on the bank of the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. In the 19th century, there were excavations uh, that found so many different artifacts from that era and area that we know about that are currently in the British Museum. It ultimately was destroyed by the Medes in 612 The expression, the great city, probably also doesn't just mean the walls of the city itself, but the city and its suburbs. Like if you would say uh, San Diego, you don't just mean San Diego proper, but San Diego and the suburbs as well. But it was a sworn enemy of the Israelites. As a matter of fact, Hosea, Amos, Elijah, and Elisha had all prophesied that it would be the Assyrians that were going to come and that were going to punish you, destroy you. Because Israel had violated their covenant with the Lord, the Lord was going to use one of their enemies to bring punishment to them, bring correction to them, to cast them out of their land. And people knew that this was going to come from the Assyrians. So you can imagine Jonah, as he received this call, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out to that great city. He may not want to go for several reasons. He may not want to go because he doesn't know what's going to happen to him in Nineveh. Are they going to kill him? Are they going to hurt him? Are they going to punish him? Or he may not want to go because of his fellow Israelites. They're going to consider him a traitor. What are you going to do going and telling them both about the judgment and salvation and mercy of the Lord? The Lord had already showed him merciful by this point in history to those who are outside of Israel. We find out later in the book of Jonah that Jonah resents the Lord sending him there because he knew the Lord was going to be merciful to Nineveh. He didn't want the Lord to have mercy on their sworn enemy. This was difficult. It was going to be unpopular. It was going to be hard. It was going to be difficult. But the Lord had called him. He was the Lord's prophet. He was supposed to go. He was supposed to be sent on this mission. And there's no lack of of clarity about what the Lord wants him to do here is it either it's not like I have to go home and try to discern exactly what the Lord wants me to do in this and take the next five years of my life right he wants you to get up and he wants you to go and he wants you to go to Nineveh it's really clear he doesn't have to try to figure out what's the Lord saying it's so confusing it's pretty clear isn't it and so we see pretty clearly the calling of the Lord but the next thing we want to look at is the fleeing of the prophet The prophet's response wasn't, here I am, send me, was it? That's the response that really all creation should have whenever the Lord speaks, whenever the Lord commands in any way. Yes, Lord, here I am, send me. But the text gives us the first of the buts, but Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is in modern-day Tel Aviv. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go away from Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's twice now. The author is trying to bracket this idea that he's seeking to go away from the presence of the Lord. Here's one who is brought up in the covenant community. Here's one who's tasted of the Lord's goodness throughout all the rituals of life in Israel. Here's one who has served the Lord already. Here's one who knew the Lord in both his judgment and in his mercy. And he wants to get up and go away from the presence of the Lord as if that was even possible. Jonah went the exact opposite way. If you looked at this on a map, he was to head eastward and he went west. He ran to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite location. He was turning away from God's word, wasn't he? The word of the Lord had come to him it was clear it was unambiguous this isn't a lack of information this is a moral problem it's not that he didn't know what to do it's that he didn't do it he didn't want to do it it's not intellectual it's not a lack of information and he's not confused it's disobedience from the Lord and that's how it is often with us as well isn't it brothers and sisters we often are pretty clear When we read through the law this morning, let no bitterness or wrath or clamor come from your mouths, but only such as gives grace to those who hear. But we don't do that, not because we don't know, but because we sin. We disobey, we rebel against the Lord. It's an act of disobedience. He is fleeing from the word of the Lord. He is fleeing from, second, the presence of the Lord. Obviously not God's omnipresence, right? God is everywhere. And Jonah, even growing, I mean, growing up, knowing the Psalms, would know there's nowhere you can go away from the presence of the Lord. If you go to heaven, he is there. If you go into the depths of the sea, the psalmist said, he is there. There's nowhere you can go from the presence of the Lord. What it means when it says he goes from the presence of the Lord is from the Lord's presence in terms of his blessings, In terms of his word in terms of his people in terms of his grace in terms of his power he wants to go away from the center of God's presence with the people of Israel and run away he wants to take himself out of the place where the temple is the sacrifices are the people are the worship is literally if we were to translate it he wants to get away from the face of the Lord it's interesting in our benediction which you'll hear later today and you hear often in this church. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That smiling face of the Lord that looks on us in grace and in mercy, he wants to run away from that. He wants to run away from the presence of the Lord. And this isn't the first time that we've heard this in scripture, is it? Who else has turned from the presence of the Lord? Adam and Eve. They heard the word of the Lord very clearly. They disobeyed and they went their own way. Cataclysmic consequences for the world and for humanity. They wanted to go away from the presence of the Lord. They wanted to do their own thing. They were fleeing prophets and prophetesses as well in that sense. And before we hurl stones at Jonah, it is wise for us to recognize the same impulse in our own hearts. Our flight from obedience to God to flight and flight from his service, uh, from serving him, because we all ultimately want to do what we want to do. We want to tell God how things are or how things should be. God created man in his image, and one theologian said, and we try to return the favor by creating God in our image. We sometimes pretend that God doesn't exist, we ignore what he says, we deny what he says, we misrepresent what he says, or we negotiate what he says. It's that rebelliousness that we see in Adam and Eve, it's the rebelliousness that we see in Jonah, it's the rebelliousness that we see in the nation of Israel, it's the rebelliousness that we see in all of our own hearts. And there might be one other lesson for us to to pick up here that isn't directly in the text. But, beloved, sometimes we tend to overinterpret providence. And by that I mean, it would not have been wise for Jonah to think, oh, look, here's a ship going to Tarshish. This must be the will of the Lord. Just because there's an open door or because something's available to us doesn't mean that this is good for us or the right thing for us. We can't disobey the revealed will of God to then try to understand, well, why is the ship available? It shouldn't be available to me. We don't want to overinterpret providence to try to make it mean whatever we want it to mean when we're disobeying the direct or obvious will of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, do not be guided by providence when you are refusing to be guided by God's word. Do not take your life circumstances as your instructor when you have not taken his word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So it's important for us to see Jonah here is very rebellious. He knows what to do. He wants to go away from the word of the Lord. He wants to go away from the presence of the Lord. He wants to go away from the people of the Lord. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. It didn't end there in Genesis 3. It doesn't end there here. It says, but God. i will start our third point here, the pursuit of the Lord. It says, but God hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. In other words, the Lord is the one who is in control of the whole situation. The Lord is the key actor in the book of Jonah, as we said at the beginning. The Lord uses means, though, doesn't he? He uses the wind. He uses uh, sinful people. In in this book, he's going to use a sea, he's going to use a storm, he's going to use a fish, he's going to use people casting lots, he's going to use the weather, he's going to use sinful people. Behind it all is the Lord. One of the things of Jonah is to lift our eyes to recognize this is the God whom we love and whom we serve, who even the sea and the oceans and fish obey him. Even sinful people ultimately obey him. Nothing will thwart the plans or the purposes of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's going to give it to his people. He's going to make sure it happens. And judgment also belongs to the Lord. And he's also going to see and make sure that it happens. It wasn't just a coincidence that a mighty storm came up right then. It wasn't fate. It wasn't chance. It was Yahweh. It was the creator of the universe. It was the redeemer of the people of Israel. It was the covenantal Lord. The author even emphasizes the divine origin by placing the words the Lord at the very beginning of the sentence, which is somewhat unusual in Hebrew. And he personifies the ship. Like the storm is so bad that if you're to read the text in the original language, it's like the ship is a nervous wreck. (laughs) Pun intended. It's concerned. This is a bad storm. Even the language that's used has a feel to it that the if, if you were to hear it out loud, it kind of sounds like a storm. It'd be like if I said splish, splash, splish, splash over and over. Even the way that it's the story is told, it's, this Lord is controlling this storm. He brought it upon the sea. The ship is a nervous wreck. Splish, splash. What's gonna happen? The sailors were afraid. Each one tried to call out to their own God. Think about that. Most likely, these aren't first-time sailors. They didn't sign up that day. Say, you know what? I'd like to be a sailor. And this is their first mission. They're experienced. They've been on the sea before, and whatever happening here terrifies them. It scares them. They're most likely Phoenicians. They're surely pagans. They worship a variety of gods. If any of you have ever seen The Deadliest Catch, you know that sometimes the situations that people get in on The Deadliest Catch are horrible, and yet the people on board generally remain relatively calm. They've been there before. They know how to deal with this. But in this situation, these sailors are terrified. And so they start to hurl cargo into the sea. It could be to lighten the load. It could be to try to appease their gods. Maybe something they throw overboard will be acceptable to the sea god, or maybe both. We don't know. That's one of the wonderful things about thinking about a story like this. But they throw things overboard, trying to make it calm down. And while they're up on board doing all this, where's Jonah? It says, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The sailors were responding to the storm with action. And Jonah was responding with inaction. He was asleep. There's a progressive descent that the author wants you to notice, which is why I ask you to pay attention to the word down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into a deep sleep. Down, down. away from the Lord, away from the promises, away from the people, trying to get away from it all, very small, in the belly of a ship. And the captain comes to him. A pagan captain comes to the prophet of the Lord. says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. That's what God had told them to do. <laughs> now the pagan s- captain is telling him to do what the Lord had told him, get up call out to your God perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish what do you mean you sleepers really what's wrong with you wake up Jonah don't you see what's going on are you just gonna lay there Are you gonna do nothing about this situation arise and call out to your God we've exhausted our options we've called out to all the gods that we know perhaps your God knows something about this situation the irony can hardly escape us right that Jonah was called by the Lord to go somewhere he doesn't and now a pagan is calling upon him to wake up and call upon his god to go and do something Jonah's sole purpose for being on the ship was to flee from the presence of the Lord and now a pagan ship captain is telling him arise and get up and call on the name of the Lord when the pagan ship captain says perhaps maybe maybe there's a hope maybe there's a prayer that this God will have a thought to save us and we may not perish. It's interesting, this remark is going to be paralleled by the king of Nineveh in chapter 3. The king of Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 9 says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. (laughs) In the book of Jonah, there are two pagans recognizing maybe Yahweh could save us. Maybe Yahweh could make it so that we don't perish. That was a promise to Abraham, wasn't it? In him, all the nations will be blessed. We're starting to get a glimpse of God's promise, even here of Jonah, of the good news of the gospel not being just for Israel, but for those outside of Israel. Here's some good news for those on the ship. Here's some good news for those in Nineveh. We start to see in seed form what will become a full-grown acorn in the church where we go out and preach to all the nations. Perhaps this God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Beloved, where has God taken notice of us so that you may not perish? Clearly, it's in Jesus Christ, isn't it? he sent his own son to endure the punish- punishment for all of our rebellion. In thought, word, and deed, things we've done and things we've left undone, he took notice even before we prayed. This was his plan, this was his mission to send Jesus Christ that we may not perish. We'll come back to that. So the sailors cast lot that they may know on whose account this evil had come upon him. And as luck would have it, right, the lot fell on Jonah. No, this is the Lord's doing, isn't it? The Lord appointed this. The Lord is the one in control of even casting lots. There's nothing outside of the control of our God. So hard for us to comprehend that, but it's meant to be a great comfort to us as people living in a sin-cursed world, as people who are banking on God's greatness and God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's mercy. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't chat, a chance. This isn't luck. This isn't just a good story. It's God's sovereignty that the lot falls on Jonah. And so then the sailors start to interrogate him, just a barrage of questions, right? On whose account has this come upon us? Fess up! What's your occupation? What are you doing? Where are you from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Blah 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 blah. On and on, a storm of questions, just interrogating Jonah. Fess up! What's the deal? And Jonah replies, "I am a Hebrew." What does that mean? I'm an Israelite. I'm of the chosen people. I'm of the favored nation. I am part of the people of promise I fear the Lord Yahweh the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land Jonah claims to fear the Lord but his actions obviously have dictated otherwise and Jonah confesses that God controls the sea while he was seeking to go on the sea to escape the presence of the Lord The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So obviously the book doesn't record everything that Jonah and the sailors talked about. It's telling us in summary form, Jonah had told them that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And now the sailors were freaked out by the storm and now they're freaked out by the Lord. The sailors, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? Because the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. You can just see the tension of it, right? This rising drama, this rising story as everything gets more and more intense. A barrage of questions, a barrage of a storm, the the chaos of everything going on around them. And Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The Lord was the one who hurled the storm. The sailors were the one who hurled their cargo. And now it's hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you he knows he's guilty he knows this is his doing he knows that this is his fault and the sailors for whatever reason find this difficult to believe right so they actually try harder and harder to get to the shore and then the storm won't allow them to (laughs) They're trying to get to the shore, which actually, in the midst of a storm, isn't the safest place. You're actually a little bit safer out at sea than right up against the shore, where everything's crashing. They were rowing towards shore in the midst of a ferocious storm, and so now the sailors call out to Yahweh, verse fourteen: "O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood." For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This is really the pinnacle of the chapter. The sailors, pagan sailors, are now calling upon the name of the Hebrew God. And they're calling him by his name, Yahweh. Instead of calling on each other, instead of calling out to all their own gods, instead of calling out to everything else, they're focused on and calling on the Lord. Which again is a foreshadowing of the promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed. And so we could ask a question here about Jonah. Does he have a death wish, or is he being heroic? Does he just want to throw me over? I just want to die. I just want this thing to end. Or does he want to be thrown over to be heroic and say, by me going over, it's going to save them? An author simply doesn't tell us. Again, it's a tension in the story that helps make it good or interesting or thought provoking or worthy of engagement and discussion. Whatever his reason is, they hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceases from raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Fear has been a recurring theme already in chapter 1 as well. The sailors had feared. The sailors feared the storm. They feared with a great fear, and now they fear the Lord with a great fear. There's an escalation from the sea to one another to the Lord. Jonah had found no way of escape. It's impossible to flee from the presence of the Lord or the purposes of the Lord. Resistance is futile, as one dictator said, right? It's a fool's errand to run from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, down to the ship, down into the deep sleep, and now down into the waters. But God hasn't forgotten, has he? God hasn't forgotten Jonah. God isn't removed from this. Once he's thrown into the sea, the whole story kind of slows down. It's kind of been going at a feverish pace with the storm and the questions and the interrogation, and then he's thrown into the sea. We don't even know how long he was there whether the fish came in one second or a week. But he's thrown into the sea, and it calms down. And then an interesting thing in discussing Jonah is is verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1 or the first verse of chapter 2. In the Hebrew Bible, they don't have versifications, and they don't have chapter headings. So what do we do with this when we don't even necessarily need chapters to understand it, right? It says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights we already saw that the Lord had appointed a wind he's now appointing a fish later in this story he's gonna appoint a plant just as the Lord has halted Jonah's flight to Tarsha so the Lord provides a divine rescue some people when they read the book of Jonah think that God is punishing Jonah I believe that the fish is a lifeboat. Dr. Estelle, in his commentary on this book, takes the same position. I think this is God's rescue operation, the Coast Guard. God's saving him. It'll become even more clear in chapter 2 as we hear Jonah lift up a psalm and a song in the belly of the fish, but God is saving him before he calls out to him. This is an amazing image of salvation. He knows he's guilty. He's thrown overboard. And the Lord appointed a great fish. It rescues him. It saves him. It reminds us of another sea or storm story, doesn't it? Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, we read these words. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. We can compare jonah and jesus there's some things in ways they're similar and there's some things that they're different both were prophets of the lord both were servants of the lord both were called to preach a word of both judgment and salvation in the name of the lord however there are significant differences aren't there jonah disobeyed jonah ran the exact opposite way jonah sought to hide and to shirk his responsibilities Jonah was really besmirching the name of the Lord through his actions, and Jonah endangered his own life and that of others. On the other side, Jesus always obeyed and always delighted to do what the Lord had said. Jesus honored the the word of the Lord and the name of the Lord. Jesus heard and obeyed. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost he doesn't endanger other people's lives he comes to give his life for them and so Jesus went down 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 too, didn't he down to earth by even becoming human down into the suffering and sorrows of human life down to live in a sin-cursed world down to the humiliation and condemnation of a cross And down to experience hell for us God forsakenness Jonah wanted to go away from the presence of the Lord from the face of the Lord Jesus didn't on the cross Jesus cried out his only prayer that wasn't to the father my God my God why have you forsaken me because he was thrown hurled overboard if you will into the storm of judgment down into hell for us to endure the wrath and the penalty for us to pay the price for all of our disobedience and even in the act of obedience that that obedience is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves it's this God that we serve it's this God that we know through the scriptures it's this God that we know through the story of Jonah the one who can control the sea and a fish and pagan sailors and bring salvation to all and then in the person of Jesus Christ Peter and the others were experienced sailors as well and they had seen Jesus in the Gospel of Mark do many miracles and they weren't yet afraid of them and then in the midst of a storm Jesus is calmly in the belly of the ship and they come and say don't you care that we're perishing And he gets up and he says to the storm, be still. And it's at that point that they say, who is this? That even the storm and the winds obey him. Beloved Jesus is revealing himself. He's the one who's in control of all things. Of life and death. Summer, spring, winter, harvest salvation, judgment, nothing. He's the one who came down to pay the penalty for our sin, to endure the condemnation that laid upon us and to be raised again on the third day that we could have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you are a pursuing God and that you don't leave us in our sin but that you rescue us. We thank you that you rescue us through our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And we recognize that salvation belongs to you and that salvation is a gift and that we receive it by grace alone. And we thank you for your mercy. We recognize that we deserved condemnation, but yet we received mercy. And Father, may that shape how we live and how we think and how we serve and how we speak to others. May we never be haughty. What do we have that we didn't receive from you? You've provided for us everything that we need for faith and for life in Jesus. And it is in his name and washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your spirit.